Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Easter Tuesday, April 14th, we are studying Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 20. Jesus has risen just as he said. Not everyone is willing to admit it, though. St. Matthew recounts for us one last attempt of Jesus' enemies to silence the Savior's word, all the while reminding us that those efforts are for nothing as Jesus sends his disciples out with his life-giving word. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Ned Murby. Pastor Murby serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blackwell, Oklahoma. Pastor Murby, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Tim. And hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Pastor Murby, as we get started, we, we're on that text that's right on the heels of Christ's resurrection. As you, you think about that text and, and the whole of Matthew's gospel, give us some context to set the stage for the verses that we'll be looking at today. Well, you know, just recently, both in the liturgical life of the church and, and in our ongoing Bible study of, of Matthew, we have seen over and over again that Jesus is in control. He knows what is going to happen to him. And even when his ministry maybe seems unsuccessful, um, especially at the climax of the gospel as he's, he's suffering and dying on the cross for us, that, that really... He has not lost control, but he is the director of everything that is going on, and we see that and, and have the promise today that that will continue even after the gospel is um, finished being written by St. Matthew. Right, yeah, the the theme that we've seen throughout Jesus' passion, that even as it seems that these human actors are, are trying to wrest control from the Lord, that he remains in control, he directs the events, all of that really comes to its its conclusion with the text today that there's going to be this one final attempt of the enemies of Jesus to take that control away from him and Jesus closing words within the gospel of Matthew are going to to put that to rest that that all of those attempts have been futile and he now is the one who bears all authority in heaven and on earth and he uses that authority for the good of this world for the good of his his church and so all of those themes are, are really going to come into, into a conclusion and be brought together here within this closing text of, of Matthew's gospel. I'm going to exactly. go ahead. Exactly. Go ahead, Pastor Murphy. No, um, so we have basically two scenes, two contrasting scenes, one taking place in Jerusalem, one taking place in, in Galilee. And, and it really shows, like you said, this is the last attempt in the gospel by people to thwart the plan of God, um, Christ's mission to save us. Um, but we know from looking at the world around us that, that this still does continue, and yet we end with, with the very confident, trustworthy promise of Christ that he is in control and is with us. Let's go ahead and, and see those two scenes at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 11. 
while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's our text for today, Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 20. Pastor Murphy said we've got two scenes, and the first scene comes right on the heels of Jesus' resurrection. The women are doing as Jesus told them. They're going to the disciples, to Jesus' brothers, and telling those disciples to go to Galilee where they will see Jesus. And meanwhile, we get this scene of the guards who had just become like dead men now are going to go and talk to the, the chief priest. Take us into this first scene. So, so the guards from the tomb are, are going to the chief priests. Um, they, they have something amazing to report. Um, you know, we, we don't know really much about, about these, these men at all, other than they were assigned to watch the tomb to make sure that the body didn't leave. Of course, the, the chief priests were thinking the body would leave if the, if the disciples came and, you know, stole it away at night. Um, but the, the guards have to go back and say, well, there was this earthquake. Um, there was an angel and, and, you know, he, 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 he was bright as lightning. Um, and whether, you know, it, it, it sure seems like they were still there and maybe overheard the conversation between the angel and the women, you know, so, so they are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Um, their report to the chief priest is really the first account we have of the proclamation of the resurrection by any man to another, any human being to another. Um, and yet it, it falls on, on deaf ears. The chief priests are concerned not with, okay, there's been a resurrection. This totally changes what we thought was going on the last few days, but they are, are so, um, intent on on keeping their position their popularity on on being in control that they ignore the evidence that is before them um concoct the scheme to um you know kind of do damage control uh, among the people um we're, we're going to blame this on his disciples and they, they pay off the guards um promising we'll keep you out of trouble if this gets back to the governor you know you won't be executed for falling asleep on the job or or anything like that um and you know, so, the guards oh go ahead well just yeah so this is i mean there's a couple of things i think we can look at here one is the the story that they concoct itself this has always made me chuckle because the story in, in and of itself is just is laughable. The, the story is 
his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's that's what they tell the guards to say. Now, if that were actually true, there's no way that the guards could actually know the story because they were asleep. As you said, they were actually eyewitnesses of, of all of this. If this story is true, they would have been asleep when it happened. And so they can't actually know whether the disciples came by night and stole the body away because according to the story, they were asleep. So how would they know it? So just to, to see the, the hypocrisy here of, of these chief priests and, and elders again is, is striking. The matter of the money coming up again, I think is, is also an, another instance of their hypocrisy coming up. Jesus has warned his disciples throughout the gospel of the hypocrisy of the, of the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders. And here again, we've got this matter of paying somebody off like we did, had with Judas. So again, we, we've got the hypocrisy. Yeah. And, and then, and, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and, and, and this should bring to mind our Lord's own words that, you know, our hearts should not be set on these earthly treasures. Um, you know, Judas betrays his Lord for, for a sum of money. And, and here these men are basically selling their salvation. They, they were eyewitnesses. They, they could have turned to Christ and believed, but their hearts are set on, on the money, the wealth, rather than on, on following you know, this, this man who just rose from the dead. Right. All the the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 come to mind that, that the one who desires to save his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. That that here you've got an example of that in the guards. They're, they're more concerned about the money. They're more concerned about saving their own skin before Pilate than they are about recognizing what has just happened in front of them. And I suppose these these guards, in that sense, stand in contrast to the centurion and the soldiers who were there at the foot of the cross. Those those men saw what had happened, heard Jesus' words. They believed that he was the Son of God. Here you've got other soldiers who see the resurrection, and they they refuse to believe, which is just astounding. And this is probably the, the bigger point that comes into play with this account is the fact that you've got these guards who were eyewitnesses to the angel, to the earthquake, to the words that were spoken by the angel to the women. And you've got these chief priests and uh, elders who heard that resurrection account, but none of them believed. And, and that's probably the, the, the biggest thing that we should see within this text. I, I think so, and, and this brings to mind that St. Paul does not talk about the foolishness of the resurrection being the basis of the gospel in which we believe, but the foolishness of the cross. And, and I imagine if you or I were writing the story, Tim, we would have had the great big miracle of, of a resurrection, and then everybody sees that, oh, you know, Jesus is vindicated, he was right all along, and had the, the masses believe um, but we don't write the story. God does. And, you know, we're, I think the devil still tempts us today to think if God would just do some miracle, then everybody would believe. And, and that's a very diabolical 
temptation because what it's saying is we know better than God, and, and we know the way that God should act in order for everybody to believe and have faith in him. Um, but God, in his wisdom, chose the foolishness of the cross to be the message of salvation. The empty tomb does confirm that that, that promise of the cross you know, is cer- true and certain, but it, it's not the empty tomb that that converts anybody. Like you said, the, the centurion at the cross will confess, surely this was the Son of God, um, in the darkness of Calvary. But in, in the bright, you know, sunrise of Easter, the the soldiers at the tomb, the chief priests, the, the message of, of the resurrection falls on, on deaf ears. And, and so we don't want to separate Christ's death and resurrection. Um, you know, they're, they're both extremely important, the heart of, of, of what we believe and confess, but it, it's God and, and his infinite wisdom that, that just astonishes us has made it so that it is, is the preaching of the cross that brings people to faith. Right, it, and it's, it's that preaching, and that's the key. We're not, we don't want to separate the cross and the resurrection. These two events go together. And, and Matthew even has helped us to, to bind them together in the, in the reporting of the earthquake that happens both at the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But, but now you've got these two contrasting scenes, and I mean, there's, there's several things going on. The, the gospel can be rejected, that I mean, think back to to Matthew chapter thirteen and the parable of the sower. You've got the sower scattering seed everywhere, and sometimes it lands on ears that the devil comes and snatches the word away, and there is no faith. And and sometimes it it lands on good soil and it grows and and produces fruit. And you've got two examples here, back to back, of of soldiers who. Who, who hear the word and they believe they're at the cross and soldiers and chief priests and elders who hear the word at the resurrection and it's snatched away. They, they don't believe. And so the, I mean, that, that's one thing is that the, the gospel can be rejected. God suffers himself to be rejected. He's going to be, he's going to save people through the preaching of the, of the cross. And if people reject it, he doesn't desire that, but it, but it happens. And, and then two, and, and this, as you've, you've mentioned, I think we should would dig into this a little more too, is this matter that, that a miracle in and of itself doesn't convert you. I mean, if, if ever there was a miracle that should have converted someone, it's the resurrection, right? Right here, Easter. And yet here are eyewitnesses of the resurrection and, and people who hear it from, from that eyewitness and they don't believe. They don't believe well, and this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, look back at God's people wandering in the wilderness. How many miracles do they witness from God? You know, the, the, the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, you know, the quail filling the camp, um, the fiery pillar leading them by night and the cloud by day. And yet how often then do they receive a word from God and think, oh, no, you know, surely this isn't true, you know, go up and attack Cana, you know, I give it into your hands. Well, no, we're like grasshoppers in their sight, you know, God can't deliver us. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it's not miracles that, that create faith. And we see this in Christ's own ministry, too. He'll do miracles, and, and people, 
you know, John tells us after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the people wanted to come and make him king because they wanted to keep, you know, having this free bread, you know, free food. Um, but but Jesus hides himself and, and, and leaves because he, he that's not the kind of king he has come to be. Um, and and uh, Matthew 13 that you brought up is, is a whole series of parables on the mystery of the kingdom of heaven or, or the mystery of how the church, you know, lives and grows, you know, in this life, on this fallen world. Um, and it comes right after Jesus' family comes to collect him because they think that he's crazy. I, I mean, who better to recognize that Jesus is the Christ than, you know, his, his relatives who, who surely heard the stories of the angels at, at Christmas and the Annunciation, um, and yet they're, they're blinded by their familiarity with Jesus, and they come, they think he's crazy, um, they're going to collect him and take him home, and so he stops embarrassing himself with his, his crazy new teaching, but then Jesus gives his disciples the, these parables explaining yeah, how the, the word goes out. Sometimes the devil snatches it away before it takes root and anybody believes. Sometimes faith is there, but, but it's weak, either because of the trials that are present in this life or because of the desire for riches. Our, our hearts are set on something else more than on God's word. And it, 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 the parable of the sower sure makes it seem like it's rare for somebody to hear the gospel and actually believe it. But when that faith is there by the power of the Holy Spirit, it, it produces an abundant harvest. Um, and, and we'll see that. I, I think that, that that concept is is tied back to what Christ says, what we'll get to in a little bit when he's in Galilee. The, the kingdom of heaven or the rule of heaven on earth, described in all of those parables, is going to continue in the ministry that Christ establishes, not a ministry of visible miracles like the resurrection was. It, it's, it's a ministry that points to that visible miracle, but it, it, it's a ministry of, of using simple words and, and, and water and baptism. Um, and, and in these great gifts, the, these invisible miracles, because something miraculous truly is happening, but it's not the the miracles that we see with our eyes and can point to and and outside of faith say wow look at how amazing this is you know you you don't you don't go out into a crowd and say you know we had a baptism at church yesterday and this child was made you know a, a child of god and it was so amazing and and people like oh you know that that's an amazing thing. We're gonna, you know, come be Christian. If if they're not already believers, they tend to say, "Well, you you poured water on a baby. You know, that, that's no miracle." And yet, by Christ's word, we know that there is a miracle there. So we are saved by a miracle, but not by the appearance of miracles. If if that makes sense, it it does. That when we think about our role as as Christians and the proclamation that has to happen. We are proclaiming the miracle that God accomplished in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But but that's that preaching is what is key. It it's not miracles, it's not God's providence in general that's going to to convert people. There has to be the proclamation of the word that 
that must be received in faith worked by the Holy Spirit. And apart from that, the the miracle itself isn't going to do the trick. Uh, you know, we, we've referenced several spots. You brought up the children of Israel. There's Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh there in the book of Exodus stands as another great example of someone who witnessed all kinds of miracles and continued to harden his heart. Yes. You've got Jesus' words in Luke 16 when he's he's talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And by the end of that account, the rich man in, in Hades asks Abraham to send someone back from the dead so that so that the brothers there on earth will believe. And, and Abraham says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. And here's here's the example of that. And, and so for us as, as Christians today, thinking about the the work, as, as we'll see, what, what God has given us in the proclamation of the word and in holy baptism, that's what's going to make disciples, not, not miracles. And, and there's a great temptation, I think, for us to, to think that miracles will do it. If, if only God would, well, I'm trying to think here. Some, sometimes you'll hear, you know, of, of something that happened, say there was a, a car accident and it happens to one of the members of your congregation and, and people's lives were spared. And, and Christians will, and, and well-meaning, say, Pastor, how can someone see that and not believe in God? And, well, here, here's an example of that. Now, as Christians, we are right to look at something like that and see God's hand in protecting his people. But we also need to recognize that that event like that is not what's going to convert someone. What's going to convert someone is the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen preached to them. Yes. I, now, it, I think that there are actually three kinds of miracles. I think there are, are the, the supernatural, visible miracles, what, what we tend to think of when somebody first says miracles. Something amazing happens. You say there's no explanation for this other than that God intervened and, and you know, saved somebody in a car accident or you know, raised Jesus from the dead. Um, fed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and fish. You know, those are the the visible supernatural miracles. Then you have the invisible supernatural miracles. And and, and those are the ones that that we are constantly surrounded by in the church. The the miracle of God creating faith through his word, of of giving us the the new birth of regeneration and and holy baptism, Christ giving us his body and blood and the Lord's Supper, um, th- those are miracles. We, they're not miracles in the sense that we can look at them and see how great they are, not with the eyes of our flesh, but in faith we take hold of God's Word and acknowledge something miraculous has happened. But the third kind of miracle is simply the natural miracle, the, the, the miracle that takes place every day of, of, of life, of consciousness, um, these are things, though, that we know the, the, the secular world, the worldly person, looks at and, and comes up with their own explanation. Well, you know, it, it's, it's a product of evolution. You know, it's a product of chance. You know, it's just a series of chemical reactions in the brain or, or something like that. And if, if they can't look at life and recognize that life is a gift from God, that, that there is a creator, then we shouldn't expect them to look at a, a visible supernatural miracle and and see Christ or, or God at work anymore in, in in that situation and they certainly then won't see God at work in in the invisible miracles of of the word and sacraments creating faith and and sustaining God's church here on earth 
Right. And, and all of all of this is simply to say that, as you've pointed out very well, these are examples of God at work among us in various ways. And and how you label those as, as miracles, I think, is a helpful way of, of looking at them. These are God at work. And as Christians, we should understand that and take comfort in that. But when we think about our role as proclaiming the good news of, of Jesus Christ crucified and risen to this world, that message has to stay front and center. And, and without that message and the faith then that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of, of those who hear, those miracles by themselves are not what's going to create faith. It's, it's going to be the word. And, and here we see an example of, of folks who don't hear and believe the, the devil comes and snatches the word away. But, but we're going to see in the second half of the text, those who do hear the word, who do believe it through the work of the Holy Spirit, and then the Lord's going to send them forth into the world with that word to go make more disciples. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. Looking at the end of Matthew's gospel this morning, we're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. Tuesday's Rumination Law and Gospel will include both myself, Tom Baker, and Mark Smith in preparing you to sing the hymn of the week for the following Sunday, which always focuses on the salvation won for us by the life, death, and resurrection of both Jesus and through Him, our death and resurrection. Listen to Law and Gospel weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Easter Tuesday, April 14th. We're looking at Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 20, with Pastor Ned Murby of Trinity Lutheran Church in Blackwell, Oklahoma. Pastor Murby, prior to the break, we looked at that first scene here in our text of the, the guards who do not believe what they've seen, the chief priests, the elders who do not believe what they hear. This story that they concoct, they, they try to cover up the resurrection. Matthew tells us that this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, and that was true when he wrote this gospel. And, and it's true still today, I think, in the fact that there are numerous ways of writing off the resurrection. And this is the, the one fact when it comes to Christianity. It, if you're going to deal with Christianity honestly, you've got to deal with the empty tomb. You, 
and and there's number a number of ways that that it, it's done still today. This is the the first of them, but there's a number of ways that it's it's done. This is the the central fact. Yes, I mean Jesus' tomb is empty. Um, a, a lot of people point to to this account in Matthew of. You know, mentioning this story circulating to the among the Jews as as indicating that he was writing to a Jewish audience, and this was a sort of um, apologetic moment, defending the truth over you know these false rumors that were spreading around. Um, but that's still the work that the church is about doing um, is is doing today, spreading the message that no Jesus really did rise from the dead, um, and the four accounts that we have in the Gospels, um, and and what Paul mentions in his letters, especially First Corinthians, you know, these are historic witnesses to these things that happened. Um, Paul makes reference to Jesus appearing to 500 people in, in one day, and at the time of his writing, many of those were still many of those people were still alive. The, the disciples' story could be checked out, and 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 Paul especially challenges his his readers to check out the story. Now, we don't have access to, to living eyewitnesses, um, but we have very reliable historical documents in, in the Gospels and, and epistles that, that tell us, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead. This was a true bodily resurrection, and it gives us the hope of, of eternal life. And, and this second half of, of our reading for today is, is focusing really on Jesus preparing the disciples to go out and preach that message of, of his resurrection, not simply in an idealistic, yes, he, raised from, he was risen from the dead sort of message, but, but of for you. And, and, and as we talked before the break about um, the word creating faith, that's what is essential, is, is the proclamation that Jesus did this for you. Believing that he rose from the dead without it being for our benefit is really no better than believing that his body was stolen by the disciples. Um, yet with all authority, Jesus sends his church out to make known that um, his resurrection has happened for our benefit. That That's a really good point to make. And I, I think that that helps us connect what's going on here with the guards and the chief priests and elders to what is going to happen later in the book of Acts in, in chapter two. That's precisely what Peter's going to preach to these very people who had crucified Jesus. He's going to, to say, you did this, but God raised him for you. Repent, believe be baptized, which is, is precisely what, what we're getting here in this second scene. So moving forward into verses 16 through 20, then, Pastor Murphy, the, the first thing that, that we should probably think about is this scene is taking place in Galilee. And and just briefly, help us to, to put this scene in place with the other resurrection appearances that we know from from the other gospels when we when we read this scene that's taking place in Galilee on a on a mountain Matthew tells us what where is that taking place how how do we fit that into the puzzle well yeah so we each of the gospels gives us a, a different account of of Jesus post resurrection appearances um, Mark very briefly in, in, in those verses that that aren't even in some of the oldest manuscripts. Um, Matthew gives us this account of Jesus in Galilee. Um, Luke and and John both give us different details of Jesus' appearance 
in in Jerusalem or outside Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus uh, that happened on, first thing on on that that first Easter um, in the evening he appears to his disciples. This will be our our gospel reading this coming Sunday in in church. You know when when Thomas wasn't there the first time, then a week later he was there. Um, so this isn't Jesus' first appearance. Um, I don't think anybody would try to say the disciples had gone up to Galilee, saw Jesus there Sunday afternoon, and then walked back to Jerusalem and, and saw him there in the evening. So our, our risen Lord has appeared to his disciples before this. It's not his first appearance. It's also not his last appearance. And, and this often gets confused um, people kind of assume that, well, these are the last words that, that Matthew writes about Christ being with his disciples um, in, in bodily form. Um, therefore, this must be just before he ascended into heaven. But Luke makes it clear that the ascension takes place again outside of, of Jerusalem. So this is probably sometime, um, maybe the same day as, as the miraculous catch of fish that John records, um, or... or in that kind of time frame, not Easter Day itself, probably not within the first week of Easter, because we know, um, well, it, John seems to hint that they're they're in the same place when, when Thomas is with the disciples the next week, although I don't think he explicitly states that, so maybe that's in Jerusalem too, but, I mean, in, in Galilee too, but it's it's in this 40 days of, of Jesus appearing and, and, you know, then hiding himself. And and my favorite um, description of this is is Jesus is playing peekaboo with the disciples. Um, you know, you, you as you play peekaboo with a child, you know, it, it, it's it's fun. You get make make the child laugh. But what you're really doing is teaching something called object permanence. You're, you're teaching the child's brain that just because I can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and and and. You know, children can have separation anxiety. You know, you, you put a baby down and leave the room, they start crying. And when you come back and they see you, they're okay because they have confidence. Okay, mommy's there, daddy's there. You know, everything's going to be okay. So playing peekaboo teaches the child just because you can't see me doesn't mean that I'm gone. I can still hear your cries. I, I, I'm here to take care of you. And, th and that's what Jesus is teaching, you know, if we can if we can call the disciples at this point the infant church. Um that that here Jesus is teaching them, you won't always see me, but I'm there for you. You know, you, you, I won't always be physically present with you in the way that I have been for these three years or so, but I am not leaving you when I ascend into heaven. Um, and, and that that ought to be a, a tremendous um, comfort to us as we take rest in those words that he's he's with us still. I, I like that divine divine peekaboo. Yeah. that's that's good. Yeah, Jesus. But and and the point that you made with it that that in these various appearances of of Jesus after his resurrection, that he is teaching his disciples even when they can't see him, he is still there with him, even if it's in a different way than he's been with them throughout his ministry and in the forty days between his resurrection and ascension, he is still with them, and that's that's what Matthew is going to emphasize here. And I think you did a nice job of, of laying out where we can. And again, we don't know exactly like is this day twenty seven after his resurrection or something like that. Yeah. You know, we we can't say that, but but that it does happen 
sometime between his his resurrection, probably after that first week of his appearance at uh, to Thomas there, particularly with the other ten. But this also is probably not right before he ascends into heaven, too. As you pointed out in, in Luke and Acts, we know that that happened just outside of, of Jerusalem. And so Matthew chooses this specifically to go with some other elements that, that he's done here in his, his narrative, and he specifically singles out Galilee. And we, we talked, we, we mentioned this briefly yesterday because Jesus, or Jesus talks about Galilee. The angel talks about Galilee. This is, this has come up. What is Matthew doing? Do you think Pastor Murby in, in singling out this particular post-resurrection appearance of Jesus? Well, we, we spoke at the very beginning of the show about how throughout his passion, Jesus is in control that, that, you know, as he says in John, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it back up again. And, and there's really this triad of, of Galilee references then. Um, and if we go back to just after the institution of the Lord's Supper, as Jesus and the disciples are, are heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane, um, um, Matthew and Mark both include his comment that they're on the, at the Mount of Olives, but this is before they're actually in the garden, Jesus um, says, um, in, he, he refers to a prophecy in Zechariah that, um, where the Lord says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and, and you'll all go your own way, Jesus says. And the disciples say, no, you know, not me. And, 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 and Peter emphatically says, you know, even if all the others fall away, Lord, I will not fall away. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Um, so again, Jesus knows what's going to happen, but then Jesus also says, when I have risen from the dead, I will go before you to Galilee. Um, and so even before his crucifixion, Jesus is telling the disciples in Galilee, I will see you again. Um, and then the angel tells the women to tell the disciples, you know, go to Galilee. Jesus is going to keep that promise. So that's the second Galilean reference, and, and Matthew includes Jesus appearing and, and saying the same thing, um, you know, go tell my brothers that, that I'm going to Galilee, um, that you'll see me there. Um, and, and so now what we're having is the fulfillment of the word spoken by our Lord, both before his crucifixion and after the crucifixion, that he will indeed meet his disciples in Galilee. And I think Matthew... Um, includes, you know, he, he chooses one post-resurrection appearance of, of Jesus to, to the group of disciples, and it's the one that clearly fulfills the promise, not only that he will be raised from the dead, but that he will meet his disciples again. And, and again, this points back to the, the for you. You know, Jesus doesn't rise from the dead to leave the disciples, but he, go, he, he rises from the dead to meet the disciples where he has promised. And, and the, the last few words then of this gospel will remind us that, that that's exactly where Christ leaves us in his church today as well. He, he leaves us to meet him where he has promised to be. You know, we, we, we find him in his word, in baptism. Um, and I, I think Christ's promise to be with his church is, is drawing our minds back again to his promise that we have his body and blood in the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of our sins. Matthew's the only evangelist that includes 
you know, that, that promise of forgiveness explicitly in, in the words of institution. All of this, this is a fantastic point that you've made, Pastor Murphy, that, that all of this is reminding us of the authority of Jesus' word. That, And, and this is, I mean, that's where he's going to go is, is his authority. Think back to the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount. They recognize that he had taught with authority. Right after that, you've got the centurion who comes to Jesus and, and says, Lord, you don't even need to come in, into under my roof. Just say the word and it'll be done. Over and over, we've seen this in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus' word carries this authority. And, and here it it comes to this climax that, and you've got the soldiers, the chief priests, the elders immediately prior trying to suppress Jesus' word. And, and here he's going to show Matthew, in, in, including just this one post-resurrection appearance, is showing us, no, the authority of Jesus' word is going to go forth into the world to, to make more disciples. So the, the 11 have gathered there in Galilee at the place where Jesus promised to be, and there he is with them. They see him. They worship him. They, they fall down and, and worship before him. Some doubted. That, that's a, an interesting thought there that, that some of the 11 doubted, although I think it, it makes sense given when you think about how the disciples act throughout those 40 days, really all the way up to the 50th day at Pentecost. And you've got the women previously who, who had fear and great joy mixed upon seeing Jesus. So, so yeah. to see some doubt within the disciples isn't, isn't terribly surprising. And, and then you come to the, the concluding words of Jesus here in, in verses 18 and 20. And again, probably not what he says right before he ascends, but the words that Matthew wants ringing in our ears and, and dwelling in our hearts as we conclude his gospel. And, and as we think about them, Pastor Murphy, they're, they're often called the Great Commission. That's the, the title even that's in the ESV in, in front of me here. And this was a, a conversation that we'd had Throughout several of Jesus' parables, you know, and this is not a parable, but but the parables get titles. And sometimes those titles are, are helpful in recalling a particular detail, but sometimes that, that title might leave something and we forget part of a parable because it's not there in the title. So, now again, this is not a parable, but... But the Great Commission is what this is often referred to. How, I mean, do you like that title? What's a, what, how do we need to think about these final words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel? Yeah. Well, so I, I don't think it's, it's a bad title if we remember the fullness of what, what these words mean. Um, you know, a, a commissioning is to place somebody under authority with a responsibility. Um, you, you know, so it, it's it's basically installing somebody into an office that that then both has the authority to do the work that has been assigned to it and the responsibility to do the work assigned to it. Um, so this is the commissioning of the disciples to go out and preach the word to to make disciples through through baptism and teaching. Um, what we're tempted to miss, though, I think, is. I, I think we're tempted to hear these words as simply, this is Jesus giving us a job to do. Um, and if that's the way we're looking at it, I think we're taking it too narrowly. And, and what's missing then is the assurance. So I, I think that just as appropriate as calling this the Great Commission is calling it the Great Assurance. Because this is Jesus giving his assurance that he will be with his church. And this is not a vague, well, Jesus is everywhere, so wherever I am, he's with me. There's certainly truth to that. Jesus is omnipresent, present everywhere. 
but there are also places where he has located himself and, and, and located his promises so that we might be assured that that is where we are meeting him, not at simply as the one who rules all of creation, but as the one who uses the authority given to him, given to his human nature. This is our brother, the man Jesus Christ, who now bears all the authority of God to make full and complete use of, um, that, that he is using it there for our eternal salvation, where his word is being taught, where people are being baptized into the name that he has given um, for us to be baptized into, the name of the triune God. Um, and, and that is then so comforting um, to know that where Christ's commission, where his mandate is, is being carried out, that, that Jesus is the actor. Jesus is the one who is accomplishing what he promises will be accomplished there. And, and so we don't want to just think about commission as these are chores that we have to do, but rather this is Jesus promising, this is Jesus telling us how he will be present with us um, and, and give us the assurance that we are not separated from him. We definitely can't miss the promise here. And and that's, I mean, the way that I, I look at it is you've got a promise of Jesus at the beginning. Then he, he tells his disciples, here's what you're going to do. And then there's the promise at the end again. So so this commissioning, which you, you explained very well, it's not just a chore to do, but being sent with the authority that Jesus has is sandwiched between these two promises of our Lord. And, and those are, are, are a great assurance, as you've said. So I, well, well summarized there. So, so take us into, if, if we can break it down into those three parts, the, the first promise that Jesus made, you already started to talk about this authority that's been given to Jesus and, and that this is given to him as a man. Why is that so important? Well, because it, it's an assurance that we have somebody ruling creation who's on our side. Um, and this, in, in the church here, this is especially noted um, when we celebrate the ascension of our Lord. Um, and even though this isn't, you know, his last word to the disciples before his ascension, it's certainly tied to his ascension. Um, you know, we, we speak of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. And, and the humiliation of Christ um, is not simply that he took on our flesh, um, but that in taking on our flesh, he did not make full use of, of his divine power and authority, specifically that he did not make use of it for his own good. He, he did not arbitrarily say, well, I've got the power to turn these stones into bread, so I'm going to do it. That was actually Satan's temptation for him. Um, he does use his power and authority over creation for others. He saves the disciples from the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He feeds the 5,000. He raises the dead, heals the sick, casts out demons. So it's not that Jesus didn't have authority, but he, he was limited in his mission uh, during his earthly ministry as to how that was appropriately to be used. And, and, and he looked to the Father and, and trusted in him Well. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So rather than save myself and come down from the cross, I will fulfill the scriptures and suffer and die. That, that is, is Christ's humiliation. His exaltation, then, is not that he's no longer a human being and, and now he's just God in heaven, but as 
a true human being, as the new Adam who represents all of humanity, um, Christ has been given full use of all his divine power and authority. He sits at the right hand of God, um, ruling over all creation, and he does so then for our good. That, that this is, as I said, our brother, you know, our, our head, the, the bridegroom of the church, who has already given his own life and his, his body for the sake of his bride, the church. But now he has taken back up his life, his body has been raised, and he rules all things for the good of his church. That is the promise that we have when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, and, and so we know that our Lord is working for our good. And he exercises that authority through his church as the church goes and makes disciples through baptism and teaching. And Pastor Murray, we've got just under five minutes left here on the morning, just so you have a way of knowing okay. what, what points are most important here. But but take us into that, that way then that Christ rules with that authority there in verses 19 in the first part of 20. Well, and so this is where the, the title of a commissioning is very appropriate, because Jesus looks at the eleven. Um, and, and says, all, all this authority that's mine, I am now charging you to exercise this authority in baptizing people and in, in teaching the, the fullness of my word to, to people. Um, and, and just one point that I w really want to make sure that we make is, you know, some translations say teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And, and that's really too narrow of a translation. Uh, it, it, certainly it includes obedience. What, God, what Jesus has told us to do, we, we are to do. But, but, but in Greek, it, it's more of a, a, a treasuring up, a, a, a keeping these, guarding them, hold them as precious. This is like what Mary did after she heard the, the, everything about Christ in his infancy. She, she you know, treasured all these things up and pondered them in her heart. That's what we are being directed to do by Christ here, to take everything he has said and treat it as though it were the most valuable possession in the world. So this is in contrast to the, the guards at the tomb who for a sum of money, you know, gave up the gospel. We are to cling to everything Christ has said as though it is the most precious gift um, possible out there. And, and that treasure is to be given to all nations, whether young or old, infant aged, men, women, Jew, Gentile, all nations are to receive these gifts of Christ, baptism and, and the teaching of this most precious treasure. And, and then Christ concludes these words with about just under three minutes left with his wonderful promise and, and words that uh, are rightly treasured by us as Christians. But, but Pastor Murphy, I think you mentioned earlier that we want to understand these words in, a, in their context of how is Jesus with us always to the end of the age? Take us into those final words of the Lord. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, if, if we just look at, at Christ's last sentence, I'm with you always to the end of the age, it, we might take it as just this, this vague promise, whatever we do, Jesus is watching over us. And, and there's certainly truth in that. I think it includes that, because he has all authority. He, he knows everything. He's watching over everything. But, but specifically what he is promising here, what he's trying to get across to his church, I believe, is that as this ministry is being carried out by the, the, the apostles and throughout history um, by, by his church, um, that Jesus 
is still the, the actor. He is the one accomplishing these things. You know, and, and Luther makes this wonderful point about baptism, about how if we look at the outward work, just as you know, a pastor pouring water on a baby, this looks like such a small, insignificant work. You know, and, and so in the medieval times, you know, people had said, well, yeah, there's baptism, but, you know, we're, we're going to build huge churches and dedicate these giant bells and, um, you know, make these gifts to the church. And, oh, you know, isn't this worth more than baptism? You know, don't I get more years off of purgatory for doing these works for the church? But Luther says we get it wrong because we consider the work by what it looks like and not consider and we don't consider the work according to who is doing it. Um, and baptism is God's work. So Luther will say that, that it is a more splendid work for God to stoop down and pick up a piece of straw than it is for you know, all of the, the masses being said by monks and, and you know, all of these things that we try to do for God. Um, what God does is greater. And in baptism and, and even in the proclamation of, of God's word, God is ultimately the actor. That, that's what Jesus is promising when he says, I am with you always. I am the one. My authority is the one that is making you into the the children of God, that, that is giving you new life and salvation in, in the waters of holy baptism. Um, you are being joined to me, who in my baptism, God said, this is my beloved son. Now you are God's beloved son because I am working on you. And, and that's his promise to be with us to the end of the age. Pastor Ned Murby is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blackwell, Oklahoma, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 20. Jesus came preaching in Matthew's gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've seen him fulfill that promise, bringing the kingdom of heaven through his death and resurrection. And now that kingdom of heaven is still at hand in the preaching of the gospel, in the baptism of all nations. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.